0: welcome to another infographic Instant conference edition in this presentation we will be looking at the paper which tackles the question what determines mergers and acquisitions legal and financial advisors competitiveness in an international financial center the usual disclaimers apply and particularly the disclaimer you see in front of you, noting that everything you see in this presentation represents my opinions alone, even though uh, much of the material in this presentation, and others for that matter, are co-authored. Now let's look at the argument in brief so that you will get the overall picture of the paper. Now remember, our question is, what determines the competitiveness of law firms and investment banks as they go around looking for mergers and acquisition mandates, and particularly in our paper, mandates coming from Chinese companies. Now, what we find in our paper are that there's this tension naturally between large elite International Financial Center-based law firms and investment banks, and you will see some examples of those in the following slides, and the smaller advisors who are often not located in International Financial Centers, but who might be located very close to the clients they're advising. So remember that a mergers and acquisitions deal is about one company looking to acquire or merge with another company. So given that one company might be based in Beijing and another in Mexico City, where are their advisors located and how can smaller advisors in China or in Mexico City hope to compete with those large advisors located in London and New York? And what we find in the paper is that many of the traditional things you would think determines an advisor's competitiveness, like the number of staff they have, where the staff were educated, how much money they have, and so forth, are not as important as other factors that we uncover in this study. And we particularly find three factors which are rather surprising both to academics and practitioners. The first factor is legal complexity. We find that an international financial center can help these advisors win business in foreign jurisdictions simply by the quality, the scope, the scale of their financial law. Such financial law allows these advisors to structure contracts in a particular way which is unique to these deals. So, given that you might have a very complicated transaction structure, it's not possible to use local law, Mexican law, in the example that I was giving, rather than uh, UK law, which is extremely complicated and versatile to allow for things such as complex securitization, the partition and allocation of risk, and so forth. And what we note in the paper is that this legal complexity actually represents a positive externality. Of course, you are familiar with the arguments that too much, too complicated financial law is bad, both for customers and potentially even for the advisors. But what we find is that rather than imposing negative externalities or costs on these market participants, there is a positive side or positive portion of this externality, which can be used by advisors to go out and win mandates across borders. The second factor that we find is, of course, advisors' attempts to differentiate their service offerings in the presence of these large global players. Now, local advisors have always touted their ability to know local market conditions better, customer focus, the ability to really know how the company works, and so forth. But what we find is that even the large players also use differentiation, and in some ways we see throughout time different advisors copying each other to move away from the pack in order to try and provide a unique service offering to their Chinese customers and foreign customers for that matter in emerging markets such that they will win these m M&A mandates. Now advisory competition worldwide balances these two forces. Those large-scale gains endowed by the financial law of the jurisdiction where the advisors work and advisors own attempt to differentiate in the presence of this Goliath-like externality which imposes gains on all advisors in particular international financial centers. Now one of the most surprising factors that we find which explains or which determines the extent of the legal complexity externality and the effectiveness of advisors differentiation are the quality of local law schools. What we find is that in jurisdictions with relatively high-ranked law schools, we observe stronger, more positive impacts of legal complexity and we observe advisors' differentiation strategies succeeding better than in other jurisdictions. Interestingly, we do not find this for economics and finance faculties. So, law schools help to endow financial centers and non-financial centers with these sustainable competitive advantages, and we will be talking about that more in this presentation. And you might be asking, well, why did we look specifically at China's going out policy and uh, the large wave of M&A transactions occurring from roughly 2000 to 2014, And the answer is that it provides a large amount of variation, a large amount of deal flow, which we can use in statistical analysis. So before we talk about uh, competition among advisors, let's give a background to China's going out as a phenomenon. In roughly the year 2000, the People's Republic of China, the government announced that they would be encouraging, certainly state-owned enterprises and providing incentives to non-state-owned enterprises to go out and invest outside of China. That's known as the going out policy. And we see that in the first waves of going out, state-owned companies were investing in assets, securities, loans, but also merging with foreign counterparts for a number of reasons, which we reference in the paper, but which we won't really go to in this presentation. And as mentioned, there were many types of going out investment, and for the purposes of our study and for this presentation, we will be focusing specifically on mergers and acquisitions. Turning our attention to Figure 12, which we see on the slide, we compare the extent of M&A activity in the three largest jurisdictions in the world, not treating the EU as a jurisdiction. We see the average value of transactions which were managed by m M&A and advisors in the top 10, and we see differentiation among the, the average values of those M&A transactions for target companies and acquirers and the uh, legal advisors and financial advisors which advise those companies. So what we see is that uh, Japan has a relatively equal allocation of deal sizes between legal and financial advisors with legal advisors making up slightly more than financial advisors and in the US we see that the proportion is slightly more focused toward financial advisors. In the Chinese context we see That they're roughly equally balanced. So we see overall that average value sizes in China exceeded those deal sizes in the U.S. and Japan during the period that we look at in the paper, suggesting that if you want to look at where the action is at, China is a very good jurisdiction to look at. Naturally, the map right below that figure shows the geographical distribution of Chinese investment, and uh, you'll see many more references to such distribution in the paper. and. Most papers describe mergers and acquisitions as a phenomenon. They talk about m and a flows and they talk about what drives m and a flows. but they don't look at the very important role that m a advisors themselves play in this process and so rather than focusing our discussion today on those m a deals, we're instead going to turn the focus and ask well. Who were the advisors that worked on these M&A mandates? How did they profit? What did they do to profit from these large deal flows? And what can other companies learn? And of course, what can academics learn from this whole process? And as I mentioned previously, it's these mega M&A flows coming out of China that allows us to see the way that advisors' competitive strategies are changing relative to these deal flows, and you can almost think about it as surfing the rapids, which you see in the figure. For very weak flows, water flows in the case of rapids, it's very difficult to see how the boats will change depending on different factors, depending on uh, whether there's rocks in the tide and so forth, to overuse this analogy. But if those flows are very voluminous, then we can see very clearly, even for relatively small changes in our variables, how advisor strategies are changing without resorting to all kinds of crazy, exceedingly complicated econometric techniques which usually confuse both non-academics and academics alike. So what did we find about the structure of advisors relative to the structure of those deal flows? In the figure you see in front of you on the left hand side, we show a rough geographical allocation of going out investment and you will see that a lot of that going out investment has been based in emerging markets, Africa, uh, South America, to a limited extent uh, South Asia of course, with the triad represented, uh, including Australia, but we see a distinct divorce in the geographical pattern of advisory services. So it's not true that either acquirer or target engage advisors at home or in the uh, counterpart's jurisdiction, but instead advisors are radically and completely geographically separated from the geographical structure of the deal themselves. So whereas in you might have a company in Urumju uh, attempting to merge with a company in Buenos Aires, you will see that the advisors on those transactions might be based in New York and London. And, of course, those jurisdictions, at first glance, have absolutely nothing to do with the jurisdictions engaged in the economically valuable merger transaction in itself. So we see this very puzzling pattern in the geographical data that advisors are geographically divorced from their clients, but looking beneath the surface of these deal flows we see that there is a structure or pattern in advisory relationships themselves. So if we look at the clustering of advisors, both financial advisors and lawyers, we see that there are certain configurations which appear more often than other configurations. So we see financial advisors in London working very frequently with law firms in New York, and so it's that social structure, it's that social network structure of relationships between these advisors which determines the deal flow that occurs in geographical geography across time. And one of the arguments we make in our paper is that we have to take a new view of geography, Uh, we're used to thinking about geography in terms of space and time countries mountains rivers and so forth but what we hope to show is that there's other dimensions of geography particularly geography of legal complexity geography of differentiation it's those variable geographies it's the social network you see in front of you and it's the geography of that network which in fact determines financial flows across space and time much more than the physical geography we are used to thinking about. What we see is that advisors and the companies themselves are rarely clustered in one place. As we previously mentioned, an acquirer in London might not always seek a advisor in London, And certainly when we look outside the first tier of international financial centers for companies in Perth, yes, it's true some of them will choose uh, advisors in the same country in Sydney, but roughly the same proportion will choose advisors in London. And we see this pattern throughout the data. And just to give a schema for the way that we look at the M&A relationship and the advisor relationship, just so we're clear about how this is structured, is that there is a buyer and a seller, of course, in any mergers and acquisitions transaction, and each side will engage their own financial advisor and they will engage their own legal advisor. But in some ways, we find that law firms are the crown jewel of the advisory relationship because not only do they advise buyer and seller, they also advise financial advisors themselves. Therefore, to some extent, all roads lead to these law firms. And very few people realize just how crucial large law firms are to the structure of international commerce. And what we find is that Yes, most of these advisors come from the usual places, but we saw increasingly, especially throughout the later period from 2008 to 2014, that advisors started to appear in less known locations in Spain and Eastern Europe and Russia and so forth. And so knowing what these advisors did in order to grab some of these mandates might help not only struggling advisors coming into this market, but all help large elite advisors understand better how to serve their clients. Now, we know that the largest international financial centers, New York, London, Singapore, Hong Kong, they agglomerate the most amount of assets under management. Their asset managers are superior in terms of the amount of money they can raise but part of that superiority is based on the quality and competitiveness of their advisors. In Figure 7, we show the difference between the shares that IFCs get in certain types of transactions and the share that non-IFCs or international financial centers get in these M&A transactions. So anytime you see a bar going up, It basically shows that the share of transactions for advisors working out of an IFC is bigger. And anytime you see a bar going down, that shows that the extent of transactions handled by advisors not working in an IFC is greater. And we divide the types of transactions according to the amount of equity that the M&A transactor is looking for in the target So, for example, looking at this first section in the figure, we show the increase in capitalization from an acquirer to a target, and we show the range in that increase from 0 to 10%, increase of 11% to 50%, and increases of 50% or more. And what we see is that for those relatively large increases in capitalization, IFC-based advisors worked more often on those types of transactions, whereas in for transactions from 0 to 10% of equity, we see that non-IFC advisors worked more often on those types of transactions. And I won't go through each bar in the figure, but we can see that some bars go up, some bars go down. None of those bars are very big. We only see a difference ranging from roughly 6% to 6%. And therefore, we interpret these data as saying that there is no particular division of labor or specialization of advisors working in IFCs as opposed to advisors not working in IFCs. So the bigger message from that figure, and indeed the whole slide, is that we cannot simply say that certain advisors or certain cities focus on particular types of transactions. Looking at the figure, what we label 8A, right next to that figure, we show the percent of transactions engaged by leading advisors. In this case we show financial advisors, but in the paper you will also see percents of transactions advised by law firms. We do not see a crisp clear focus on different types of advisory contracts for different types of advisors. It's not the case that most of Morgan Stanley's advisory work focuses on finance or focuses on uh, consumer staples. It's not the case that Citigroup's advisory work focuses mostly on consumer discretionary sector. We see that the proportion of advisory work among these different top advisors varies across the different types of clients that you see shown right below the figure and therefore we do not see at all any kind of specialization between advisors like classical economic theory might predict and what is more we do not see any type of focus based on the type of client. we do not see that Morgan Stanley for example focuses mostly on state-owned enterprises or that Citigroup does even though in the case of Citigroup we see a relatively large proportion of clients as state-owned enterprises, especially when compared to JP Morgan's 15% of state-owned enterprises, but it's certainly not the case that across the entire spec of advisors that we see any kind of specialization. Now, taking a more detailed look at uh, different sectors, and the extent to which elite advisors get involved as opposed to non-elite advisors. a Figure 9, as labeled in the slide in front of you, shows the percent of advisors working in bulge bracket or big law law firms. And what we see is that the proportion of these elite advisors might be higher for healthcare than for consumer staples, Of course, we don't conduct any kind of t-tests or other tests to see if these proportions are truly different or not different, but even eyeballing the figure, you can see that it's not the case that these elite firms, when taken as a whole, seem to focus on particular sectors or industries. We see a relatively equal pattern of advisory relationships across sectors. And we see that even more clearly when looking at the ranking of cities as the container, if you will, of these advisors. Now, naturally, if London-based advisors, for example, are just so awesome and London is really giving these advisors something incredible that allows them to compete better than uh, New York or Singapore, then we would expect their city ranking to remain relatively higher than their peers over time. But we see there's a relatively large amount of variation in uh, the ranking of these cities holding both financial advisors and legal advisors, and therefore there has to be some variable or variables which are buffeting these advisors, much like in the analogy we talked about earlier when we talked about the rapids, pushing advisors downstream and thinking about what are the factors that are causing differences in the competitiveness of these advisors. Now in the literature people often say well big is bad, big is awesome. Gravity is the factor that causes clients to go to companies. When advisors are very big and popular and powerful then they will attract clients. But we see that there aren't these gravitational pulls both between clients and advisors and between advisors themselves. Now, in order to understand the gravity of these advisors and how big these big boys of Chinese advisory are, let us turn our attention to figures 14A and 14B. These figures just provide the data to show how big the transactions were that these advisors handled over the period. And what we see for the financial advisors, total deal values were the highest for Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, Citigroup, and at the end of the top 10, they were relatively lower for Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, and Rothschild. And the boxes that we see above the bars show the average deal values. So to the extent that you want to go for value rather than volume, we see that some advisors like Rothschild have not done potentially as well as advisors like JP Morgan. Looking at the legal advisors in turn, we see that the top advisors consist of Linklater's, Clifford Chance, Freshfields, and throughout the presentation and paper we only refer to the top one or two partners in a law firm so that we don't have to go through this long crazy list of advisors' names in some cases. And what we see is that also even among the top ten there are substantial differences in the total volumes of transactions that these law firms handle. So if Jones Day did the worst in the top 10, then Linklater's certainly did the best. And as we talk about uh, a bit in the paper and certainly in other videos, the attractiveness of these advisors follows what is known as the power law. So unlike a normal distribution where there's some very good advisors that make a lot of money, maybe one or two, and one or two advisors that make almost no money at all, as you would expect in a normal distribution. In a power law distribution, you see one or two advisors doing a fair amount of the advisory work, but then a relatively larger chunk of them doing pretty good, an even larger chunk doing good, and then you've got this long tail going out of many, many, many advisors just kind of struggling along and what we see is that there's little relationship between the type of advisor, the type of advisee, and the type of transaction as we discussed. And looking at figure 13 on the figure, we show what we label bulge-bracket banks and normal banks and we show big law firms and what we call normal law firms or those law firms that are not in the top ten and we show the proportion of advisory relationships that are based in financial centers not based in financial centers and just kind of eyeballing the size of these bars we see that the bulge-bracket banks located in IFCs scored the majority of the mandates during this period, but we see that these smaller law firms not based in IFCs scored a relatively large amount of these advisory relationships throughout the period. So, of course, that leads to the question, well, what's so different about banks in international financial centers that differs substantially from law firms that are not based in these international financial centers? Now, in order to understand the attractiveness of these advisors, and particularly the IFCs in which they're based, we have to think, well, maybe London and New York get all the business just because Chinese advisors are so bad. That would seemingly make sense, is that if a Beijing-based acquirer went to a Mexico City company – sorry to keep using Mexico City as an example – and the advisors in both China and Mexico City were just so bad, then they would be forced to look for advisors in other jurisdictions. But we show in the paper that we can rule out this explanation as a cause of IFC advisor selection. Namely, Chinese advisors can compete and we show their competitiveness along two dimensions. We show the uh, deal values that these advisors handle domestically, and we show the amount of deals that these advisors handle. And what we find is that advisors, of course, in Beijing and Shanghai, they represent very large clients with very large transaction values, but we see even domestically advisors in smaller jurisdictions, in Nanjing, and Chengdu, and Wuhan, they still advise relatively large amounts of companies and large amounts of money, if you will, flowing through the M&A pipeline. So it's not the case that Chinese companies are choosing advisors because there are no domestic alternatives, and indeed, we see the similar pattern at the international level, we see it repeating itself at the domestic level. Even though there are highly qualified advisors in smaller jurisdictions, the majority of that advisory work is concentrated in two or three jurisdictions. Now in the literature you'll see the explanation that many Chinese companies use these foreign advisors because they want to round trip money. In other words, they want to send money outside the country through this going-out policy, but they want to be able to bring the money back into China in order to take advantage of very profitable investment opportunities at home. And we find that even after taking these factors into account, there's no way that such round-tripping could even begin to explain why uh, external advisors are so popular for Chinese companies. So the paradox that we see in the literature and the data are that Chinese advisors can compete but they don't compete. Now why is that and what can advisors in places like Istanbul learn from this experience? Now let's paint a picture of the evolution of advisory relationships over the time period from 2000 to 2014. And to illustrate the flow of advisory mandates during that period, we show four figures from the paper. Figure 15 shows the evolution away from international financial center centric elite advisors and the increasing importance of smaller advisors and we show that in four sets of bar charts. In the first set of bar charts we show the percent of advisory relations where the target city matches the advisor city. So these bar charts show cases where a company shopped around right at home, right in their own city, for an advisor. And what we see is that whereas in both targets and acquirers chose less than 20% of advisors in their own city from the period 2000-2007, that domestic local choice increased roughly 37 percent in the late period of going out so we see an increasing localization of advisory selection during this period similarly we see a decrease in the proportion of advisors in the top 10 over the time period so whereas in these going out companies and their targets chose counselors in roughly 75% of the cases working in IFCs in the early period, we see that this proportion had dropped to around 50% by the latest part of going out. Looking at the third part of the figure, we show the extent to which the advisor belongs to these elite firms, which we call bulge bracket banks or big law law firms. And we see again a decline in the proportion of advisors belonging to these elite tranches of advisors. So in the early period, if it was roughly around 50%, by the late period, it was hovering at around 25%. And finally, we see a increase in the Proportion of private companies as opposed to state owned companies, which are the clients to these advisors. So again, we see that the red bar chart gives way to the black bar chart as the proportion of private companies increases over the going out period. Now, stepping back and looking at these four bar charts as a picture, this clearly shows that. If the early period of going out was dominated by elite advisors working in international financial centers, working with state-owned enterprises, and working outside of the city or even country where their customers were based, the latter part of going out represented somewhat uh, the complete reversal of these trends. Now, how can we think about global competition among these legal and financial advisors? Like we've been talking throughout the previous slides, non-IFC, non-elite advisors have certainly increased their market size over the time period we study. and We see that in Figure 21B through the elasticity of advisors' deal sizes with the total for the top ten. So just like the last slide, we were looking at how much these deal sizes changed for the top advisors relative to everyone else, we see that these deal sizes have been shrinking over time. And what we also see is that there is a track of advisors around the world. So it's not the case that geography is this equal plane, this equal playing field. But instead, there are geographical locations, which we see in figure 30, which serve as kind of ruts for advisors. If you are an advisor working in one of these jurisdictions, you can move up and down the the lead tables in terms of the number of deals that you get, the value of the deals that you get. But we find that basically when you're in these jurisdictions, that almost determines, that's almost destiny for these advisors. So when we ask how can we make advisors more competitive, we're usually asking about advisors located in places like the Middle East, like Australia, certainly in China, and to a lesser extent in East and Southeast Asia, and what we find in our econometric analysis is that there are two factors which determine advisors' competitiveness in these dots that you see on the map. The first, of course, is the quality of the financial law, and second is the extent of service differentiation by these advisors. Now let me describe briefly what we mean by these factors and why they might contribute to advisors' competitiveness. Now when you think about legal complexity, of course you're thinking, Well, having very complicated financial law, having lots of reporting requirements, having very in-depth supervisory requirements by regulators, that's very costly. How can that possibly be good for M&A transactions? And the answer is, it's that same complexity that allows advisors to structure very complicated deals in order to make even unprofitable deals profitable. Think about the subprime mortgage crisis that occurred in the U.S. and probably will occur in China in the upcoming years. These advisors took non-performing assets. They took mortgages that weren't paying. They were rebundling them and selling them on Wall Street so that investors could make lots of money. Without the financial law underpinning the securitization relationship, there's no way that money could have gotten to these mortgages and eventually helped to grow the real estate sector. Now that example, of course, is a negative example of the power of financial law, but it is illustrative of the way that financial law can be used to structure financial transactions. And I had to choose an example that you were probably familiar with, even though it's a negative example. So what I'm asking you to do at this point is just believe that if the financial crisis represented a small bad part of financial law, there is a very large and very productive part of financial law which is used to structure deals in a way that can add value to both target and acquirer a london or new york based advisor whether bank or law firm can appear in beijing and say look i can structure your deal in a way that nobody else can by virtue of the law that my advisory firm inherits and of course the client's going to say yes i I want that you can take a firm which might not be doing so well, merge with another firm, get everything that company wanted in terms of intellectual property flow, in terms of customers, new markets, etc., but also this fabulous, spectacular array of attributes coming from financial law, diversification of risk, a partitioning of risk across borders to people who might want it and so forth, and it's that structuring of of the deal that comes through this legal complexity that gives these advisors their value. Now of course on the other end of the spectrum we have advisors looking at this structuring of deals and they're saying, well maybe I'm not from a jurisdiction that has that kind of law or maybe there are other advisors, these big boys we've been talking about who already have sewn up this market, how can I react, how can I differentiate the type of service that I offer in order to compete with these elite firms? So taking another example from the pop press, you might think about the, the nationwides of the world. These securitizers that started to rise in the middle part of the 2000s, they were the differentiators. They were the ones that said, look, we're going to make something completely new, completely different. Or to take another example, fintech. Uh, you have some companies that say look we cannot compete by size, there's no way that we can use the legal complexity that we've inherited from our jurisdiction what else can we do to try and earn this business and what you'll see shortly is that we can actually measure this and see how this differentiation over time has helped certain advisors score mandates. So let's look at the data Uh, Figure 26 shows two potential measures or two dimensions of legal complexity. On the y-axis, we show a banking regulation similarity index. And this is an index that I and co-authors actually computed using a World Bank data set of banking and financial regulation across the world. The data set itself has over 800 indicators or legal provisions, and they simply quantify the extent to which legal provisions exist or don't exist or how binding they are. In case uh, there's a structure of a regulator that can be scored from one to four, uh, they simply look at differences in regulatory structure and assign them numerical values. And what we do in our index is we take those 800 plus numbers and we crunch them into one number using a fancy technique called clustering and multidimensional scaling Uh, I won't go into the econometrics of multidimensional scaling here but all you have to know to understand this graph is that well we can assign different countries financial law we can assign them a score based on how similar that country's complexity is So very complicated financial laws will get similar scores, very high scores on our measure, whereas in very simple financial laws we will get very low scores. Now, in order to make sure that we weren't just hallucinating and making this up, we compared this with another legal complexity score that we got from an international federation of company secretaries and company and corporation companies and it's it's called TMF. And what we find is we find some correlation between the legal complexity that they find when they go through provision by provision of financial law in various jurisdictions. However, there are some differences. So the way that we kind of resolve this problem in the paper is that we say, well, our measure is more a measure of similarity, whereas in their measure might be considered a measure more of this actual complexity, but because they're completely non-transparent about the way they develop the index or show how the index works over time, of course we prefer our own measure. But in any case, stepping back and looking at the figure, we show that there are levels of legal complexity. Even if you don't believe any one particular measure, just taking a combination of the two measures you can see how different countries very clearly have different levels of legal complexity. So we see the US, Germany, UK having relatively high levels of legal complexity on both measures whereas in countries like China might have very high similarity with very complicated legal systems on the one dimension, but relatively uncomplicated financial law on the other dimension. However, the moral of the graph still holds that countries can be ranked according to their financial law, and we can use differences in the complexity or the extent of that financial law in order to see how it impacts on advisors' competitiveness. Turning our attention to the other figure, we show The degree of differentiation in advisory relationships during the period. So, what this graph does is it says, okay, we're going to look at each advisor, we're going to take all kinds of competitive attributes, their market size, the uh, types of sectors they focused on, the types of clients they focused on, the countries that they worked in, and so forth. We're going to take that whole array of data, that whole matrix of data and again we're going to just squash it into two factors and so in that way we reduce all this crazy complexity into two very simple factors which we label as strategic factor Y and strategic factor X and so that we don't get into this crazy debate about whether strategic factor X actually represents some label that we give it like uh, for example orientation to customer needs We just don't label these factors. We say, look, there is some dimension of competitiveness that these advisors are working on. The data show that to us. That part cannot be argued. Now, we don't know what it is and we're not going to even try and explain it. All you have to do is take this fact rather than an interpretation and say, look, the fact exists that these different advisors have chosen these two dimensions upon which to compete. And using the econometric analysis that we engaged in for this study, we see that different advisors clearly pursued different types of bundles of strategies as they went for Chinese M&A mandates. And we don't label the companies here partly so that we're not very controversial. You'll actually see that labeling in the paper. Now, stepping back and thinking, okay, well, all this data is nice, but what's your theory? What's your view? And what story are you telling about the way legal complexity and differentiation work in order to help Chinese companies get deals done and to help advisors get mandates? And so, of course, following the traditional economic method of analysis, we look at two sides of the market. On the figure 32, we show the utility curves of these Chinese companies. And we say, okay, we see in the data that Chinese companies exhibit preferences for advisors using particular types of legal complexity in order to get deals done and different types of differentiation. And so, of course, we can draw what are known as indifference curves or Uh, we can look at levels of mandates given to different types of companies that are using combinations of these two factors. And on the demand side for advisory service, we can see some kind of demand which is drawn out by these utility curves. And I won't go too much into it because it's microeconomics 101, but for those of you without an economics background, the moral of that part of the story is that Chinese companies are looking for advisors with some combination of access to cool financial law and differentiation to meet their needs. Now, let's look at the supply side of the market, and we can model this as a typical production function, if you will, across advisors. Advisors themselves decide to some extent, well, how much legal complexity can we encourage our parliament to give us or how much legal complexity can we use simply by fir- virtue of locating a particular jurisdiction uh, how much money can we spend in order to improve law schools in order to change legal complexity and so forth all you have to do is accept that different advisors have access to different le- levels of legal complexity for the purposes of this argument Now. Advisors, of course, can make a trade-off. They can rely either on this legal complexity to win Chinese mandates, or they can say, "Look, we're not going to do that. We're going to focus on differentiating our service offering." And we see that whereas in New York has gone on one side of the scale to focus on the complexity of its law, Switzerland, for its part, has decided to focus on differentiation in order to score these Chinese customers. And all you have to really buy for this side of the argument is that advisors are constantly trying to use proportions of legal complexity and differentiation or trying to heap up both of these factors in order to compete more effectively. So larger advisors might be closer to the the, the frontier, if you will. Larger advisors might heap up large amounts of differentiation, large amounts of the use of complicated financial law, whereas in smaller advisors might be located inside this production possibilities frontier without this type of heaping. And similarly, some types of Chinese companies might require very high extents of heaping A very complicated state-owned enterprise might require relatively large amounts of differentiation and access to complex financial law, whereas in other types of companies just don't need it. So why pay the expense? So the goal is to match at various levels of differentiation and legal complexity, to match these advisors with companies. that's the basic model that we use in order to to get our paper going and we use probabilities which we will describe in the appendix to this paper. Now, of course, legal complexity and differentiation, they both serve as substitutes and complements when competing for business. At the systemic level, of course, they're absolutely complements. To to give you the intuition for this argument, we can think about the firm level and we can think about the jurisdiction level. So, looking first at Figure 39, we show the relationship across the advisory transactions we looked at between advisors with resort to relatively complex financial law and with resort to high or low amounts of differentiation. And what we find is that just plotting these two variables, just putting uh, the levels of legal complexity and differentiation on a scatter plot and showing it to you, it shows an apparent relation which is highlighted on the black uh, regression line. And we see a slightly negative relationship between these variables. Namely, when advisors don't have access to this awesomely complicated financial law, they've got to differentiate. And in the red regression line, we show what we label as the real relationship. And what we've done is we've done all of our econometric and regression analysis in order to remove the effects of other variables. And we show only that pure or isolated relationship between differentiation and the complexity of financial law. And... At the firm level, we see that clearly these two factors are substitutes. Now let's step back and think about the jurisdiction level. Well, We know that the U.S. might be more competitive than Indonesia because the U.S. simply heaps much more of these two variables on when going out looking for advisory business than their Indonesian colleagues might. And we show that by these kind of hills or these curves that you see in front of you. And those curves depict the overall combinations of legal complexity and differentiation that are used by different types of advisors. And as we showed previously, there's a clear and obvious correlation between advisors from certain countries which are heaping large amounts of complexity and differentiation, as opposed to jurisdictions which are heaping relatively little. And if there's no price difference in uh, how much those advisors are charging, then it's obvious that Chinese firms should choose the higher helping, heaping groups of advisors, as opposed to the lower set of differentiation and legal complexity advisors now we talked a bit about law school when providing an overview of this presentation and we said well the quality of the law schools in any particular jurisdiction has a very important role to play in explaining the competitiveness of MA advisors and law school has a very important role to play in determining the extent to which legal complexity and differentiation affect an advisor's ability to score going out mandates. So those of you that are familiar with uh, statistics you'll be familiar with the term covariate. This covariate or this factor which affects how the other explanatory variables are impacting on advisory relationships, it's that law school quality which is serving as this covariate. Now let's step back away from all this crazy econometrics and think well what's the intuition behind this law school? variable. How do law schools impact on legal quality differentiation and ultimately on an advisor's ability to score going out mandates? And we can give three examples of how law school quality might affect these factors. One factor might be through the law school's ability to affect the quality of laws in that jurisdiction. Law schools make lawyers. Law schools make advisors to parliaments or other rule-making bodies. Now, the extent to which law schools are training better lawyers and advisors, that clearly filters out into better law. The second possible channel relates to the quality of the lawyers themselves who are involved in these m transactions. So thinking about... Uh, a Beijing company acquiring, again, this Mexico City company, if the lawyers in that transaction are very clever, they can make the deal cheaper and uh, more profitable for both sides of the transaction. But remember I said that there's lawyers everywhere in this transaction. Not only are there lawyers advising both sides of the transaction itself, they're actually advising the bankers involved in the transaction. So to the extent that differences in lawyer quality affect the probability of success and the value of that transaction, and to the extent that law school quality impacts on the quality of the lawyers involved in that transaction, then we know that law schools obviously have a role to play throughout this whole procedure. The third factor, of course, is not only on the quality of the lawyers themselves, but also on the quality of the advice being given all across the M&A transaction chain. We see even intuitively that law schools should play a very substantial role in the competitiveness of MA advisors as well as the jurisdiction in which those advisors are based. And our econometric evidence shows this as we illustrate through three figures you see in front of you. In figure 35, we show several variables that we Analyzed when looking at the probability of a target company's advisor city matching the target uh, company city. So we're asking in this regression, well, what are the chances that an advisor is based in the same city as the client? And what we find is that when the law school in that city is really good, it's more likely that a company will choose an advisor in its own city rather than going out. When the financial law is relatively complex and rich, allowing for this very creative structuring of deals, it is more likely that a company will choose an advisor at home. And like I said, there's two measures of this potential complexity. And looking at both measures simultaneously, we see differential impact. We see that complexity encourages local companies to choose local advisors but similarity for its part actually encourages these companies to to choose advisors outside the city so you do, you don't want an advisor that just has a very similar law to what you have at home, you need that law to actually be complex. Many pundits, academics and businessmen, they say, well look, you need to choose an advisor because their laws are very similar to your laws. Chinese companies are acquiring German companies, they're going to want a German advisor because their laws are very similar but the data show that's not true it's not the similarity in that law that's important it's the actual complexity of that law which encourages companies to choose local advisors or not and of course we see that when advisors work in an awesome international financial center they're more likely to get business no matter where they are and no matter where their customer is turning our attention now to figure 36 this shows the probability that a going-out acquirer or target chooses an elite advisor. And what we see here is that as the law school quality increases, the probability that the company is going to choose an elite advisor goes down. And that of course makes sense because when law firms at home are very good, you don't have to go outside to choose an advisor. You can choose one right at home. And similarly, when the quality of the international financial center is very high, then we expect to see this going out company or the target choose an elite law firm or banker. And that makes sense, of course, because international financial centers are often where these elite companies congregate. Turning our attention now to figure 38, this shows the number of other advisors that an advisor works with. So remember that on both sides of the transaction, you're going to have bankers, you're going to have lawyers, there'll often be coalitions of or consortia of these advisors working on both sides of the transaction. We ask, well, what determines the number of advisors working on a transaction? Now, unsurprisingly, deal value affects the number of advisors such that bigger deals require more advisors. Interestingly, the ranking of the economics or finance faculty in that jurisdiction relates positively with the number of advisors on a transaction. It's not clear why having better economics departments translates into having more advisors on a transaction. On the one hand, it could be that these very good economics departments are creating a lot of controversial ideas and different ideas, and therefore they have to be lumped in through a large number of advisors onto a transaction, but it could just be the opposite effect. It could be that a good, high-ranked, economics faculty is actually not producing good advisors and therefore more advisors are needed. So there's two possible effects that could be at play and therefore we just don't talk about this effect anymore other than to note that it exists in the numbers. And what we see is that overall in the various panels that we run and across the analysis that finance departments and economics faculties in general have little impact on an IFC's ranking or on advisors' abilities to go out and win going out mandates. Instead, it's the law school that plays the determining role. But our study is more than just another econometric study of MA or advisors to MA. Stepping back for a moment, I would argue, at least personally, that this study tells us something about the broader issue of the geography of finance. Now, to characterize thinking about the geography of finance. I show the old school and that way of thinking about geography from geographical studies, from the geography of finance literature and so forth, tends to think about uh, international financial centers and investment flows as occurring across time and space, across oceans and countries and the way we measure that geography is in the old-school terms of latitude and longitude, uh where it is in the country, where it is in geography, looking at Silicon Valley for example, and even the geographical school is typically portrayed by the old-style geographer going out and tracking on the ground where the banks are, where the investors are, And so not to deprecate against that view, but instead to offer an alternative view of geography, and that view is almost postmodern. It's the view of geography that has been evolving for decades and is even shown by certain types of metro maps. The beauty of metro maps is this delinking of geographical place and distance with distance on the world so you could portray metro stations not in actual distance making the maps very large but in terms of relative distance by which stations are next and that's why we consider metro maps so beautiful and helpful in the same way like we use a metro map we can use a m M&A and advisors map we can create a new coordinate system we can think about new geographies as we think about this new geography of finance. And so one very simple geography of finance, as we've been talking about previously, is mapping advisors or financial centers or even clients along the dimension of legal complexity and diversification. So instead of using latitude and longitude and saying... uh. 21 degrees east by 17 degrees north, why not use this alternate coordinate system of 0 to 1 for legal complexity and 0 to 5 for differentiation, giving an equally valid coordinate system. And as we show in the map of the world and the probabilities of various advisors receiving M&A going out mandates, We see their location on this map, as you see in the slide, but it is equally possible and far more helpful, in my opinion, to portray each of these points by a unique location in complexity, diversification space, or a whole range of other geographies that we talk about in the paper. Notice if we do that, then we don't have all this wasted space. There are four advantages to thinking about geography in this way rather than just plunking everything on a map of the world. The first, of course, is that you still get a unique coordinate system, which is vital if you want to talk about one place rather than the other. However, the, the reason why geographers often use geographical space is its transitivity. In other words, we know that we can talk about a population center, we can talk about um, environmental changes, we can talk about all kinds of various changes happening in the same place at the same time. And that's the power of geography, is to look at the way different variables change for the same place, or different places for the same time, or different times in different places. Now, using an alternate coordinate system provides the same beauty without all the wasted space of geographical space. It's dynamic, as we've shown in the presentation, and even more importantly, it's communicative. What that means is that we can grab results from one part of our study on differentiation, And drag it all the way through to currency changes or other changes, much like geographers try to do imprecisely when they make arguments about the way um, environmental or pollution changes affect, let's say, morbidity or uh, changes in income across geographical space. And so removing the geographical spaces were taught to think about it in grade school, and instead using what mathematicians and economists are very comfortable with, which are these spaces, multidimensional spaces, that just makes the exercise of thinking about advisors just that much easier. In conclusion, what does our study show about the factors determining m advisors' competitiveness? There's lots of studies out there that focus on M&A transactions, why one company buys another company. There's lesser amount of studies, but they're still there, that show why advisors may work on particular types of transactions. And you'll see a summary of those studies on the right-hand side of this slide. Some of those factors include the completion rates of various advisors, their expertise, specialization, which we said actually doesn't exist in our data, Uh, advisors' effects on the profits of their clients, that's very controversial, the embeddedness of these clients in their own home markets, and so forth. And what we find is that, well, few of these studies agree anyway. We need better explanations for understanding advisors' competitiveness. And what's more important is that we need a better way of understanding the geography of finance. It's not simply that money flows across land like uh, water does. And so what we argue in the paper is that we need a new geography of finance that focuses on these other dimensions we've been talking about on legal complexity, on differentiation, on law school quality—that is the way that we measure geography. It's not a measure of geography that focuses on hills and valleys and rolling plains and so forth. To, to put geography simply, and our study is a super important question for the Goldman Sachses and Baker McKinseys of the world, and their their competitors that are out there thinking, well, how do we score more mandates from Chinese companies, from Japanese, U.S., from any companies? What are the factors that drive our competitiveness vis-à-vis our rivals? And what we find in our study is that it's the law school that your employees go to and it's the law school that is in the same city that you're working in that is driving a large part of your competitiveness more importantly it is the wild complexity of all that financial law you're complaining about all day long it's that complexity that's actually allowing you to go out and get business that you otherwise wouldn't be getting and of course it's that differentiation that these firms are engaging in but for the value of our study it's actually being able to quantify that differentiation and say look uh, Goldman Sachs is engaged in 3.2 by 4.7 units of differentiation as opposed to Uh, Credit Suisse, which is 1.2, 9.6 on these two measures of differentiation. So the simple ability to measure differentiation rather than blah 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 like a management guru, that contributes importantly to this range of literature. This has been another Infographic Instance conference series with Brian Michael, and in the appendix we describe with a musical background the model we used in order to do our analysis. I play it the company way. Wherever the company puts me there I'll stay. But what is your point I of view? I have no point of view. Supposing the company thinks? I think so too. Well now what would you say? Of, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't uh, say. <laughs> your face is a company face. It smiles at executives then goes back in place the company furniture oh it suits me fine the company letterhead valentine Uh, is there anything you're against unemployment when they want brilliant thinking uh, from employees that is no concern of mine suppose a man of genius make suggestions watch that genius get suggested to resign oh so you play it the company way oh company policy is by me okay you'll never rise up to the top there's one thing clear Whoever the company fires, I will still be here. Oh, you certainly found a home. It's cozy. Your brain is a company brain. The company watched it. Now I can't complain. The company magazine. Boy, what style, what punch. The company restaurant. Every day, same lunch. Their haddock sandwich, it's delicious. Oh.